Welcome back to Generation Invincible, a podcast on public health, healthcare policy, and social justice issues by a millennial for millennials, and anyone else that cares about the health and social problems facing our nation. I'm your host, Abigail Meller. So right now, I'm feeling a strange combination of woo, hallelujah, and no, why, towards our government. Good news or bad news first? I'll start with the bad. Recall in episode three, the Jim Crow health woe, that I spoke about how Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe used his executive power to restore voting rights for some 200,000 felons in Virginia. The part of Virginia's constitution that covers this prevents felons from being able to register to vote, even after serving their time and completing probation. And while Governor McAuliffe made an executive order to restore these voting rights, as most other states have, it was reversed when the Virginia Supreme Court ruled against him. According to the Supreme Court, in a 4-3 to decision, the governor lacks the authority under the state constitution to issue a blanket rights restoration to everyone in the state with a felony record. This is in part related to politics. Republicans say that McAuliffe, a Democrat, only made the executive order because most of the voters will vote Democrat in the election, especially because we're talking about a swing state here. But McCullough's point had nothing to do with the election. He wanted to be sure that the one in five African-American voters in Virginia who disproportionately were affected by this policy were restored their full civil rights. Joke's on you, Supreme Court. Because even though you seem to hate democracy, McCullough ain't going down so easy. He made a statement after the decision saying, quote, judiciously signed nearly 13,000 individual orders to restore the fundamental rights of the citizens who have had their rights restored and registered to vote, and I will continue to sign orders until I've completed restoration for all 200,000 Virginians. My faith remains strong in all of our citizens to choose their leaders, and I am prepared to back up that faith with my executive pen. The struggle for civil rights has always been a long and difficult one, but the fight goes on, end quote. So this cloud definitely has a silver lining, as some civil servants actually do care about citizens. And now for my ugh hallelujah moment. Why? Because freaking finally, Congress passed something worthwhile. On July 13th, Congress passed the most sweeping drug legislation in years. President Obama has committed to sign the Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act, which will strengthen prevention, treatment, and recovery options for our nation's opioid crisis. First of all, the legislation will expand the availability of naloxone to law enforcement agencies and other first responders. You may have heard of naloxone before. It's a drug that can counter the effects of a heroin or opioid overdose. Second, Y'all should know that as the laws stand now, inefficiencies and loopholes in current programs allow lots and lots of people to cheat the system and get drugs when they shouldn't. This legislation will improve the prescription drug monitoring programs to help states track prescription drug diversion and help at-risk individuals access services. Next, the legislation will move resources towards identifying and treating incarcerated people who suffer from addiction. Right now, many addicts are simply sent to jail, cough or on drugs, cough, without any recovery or treatment. And lastly, the Department of Education will be prohibited from including questions about the conviction of an applicant for the possession or sale of illegal drugs for federal student aid financial aid form. 
No member of Congress appears to have expressed outright opposition to this bill. It stands at a point between criminal justice reform and mental health legislation, two of the three policy areas which House Speaker Paul Ryan claimed would pass both the Republican Congress and Democratic president this year. The only problem, which is sort of like the opposite of the silver lining for the situation, is that the legislation was passed without any budget. Dems are pissed because they say Congress can't ever pass a spending bill, with Senator Chuck Schumer saying, quote, Colleagues on the other side of the aisle are more interested in showing voters they're doing something about opioids than actually doing something, end quote. Obvi referring to Republicans for this us-against-them argument. But at the end of the day, this is undoubtedly a huge step in the right direction, not only for beginning to combat the epidemic of opioid abuse in the United States, but also towards decreasing the stigma surrounding addiction of any kind. And so, that's the theme of today's episode the history of opioid abuse in the United States, why it's an epidemic today, and where we go from here. Prescription drugs, show me love, Percocets, Adderall, Zanny Balls, get codeine involved, stuck in this body It is estimated that between 26.4 million and 36 million people today abuse opioids worldwide, with an estimated 2.1 million people in the United States suffering from substance abuse disorders related to prescription opioid pain relievers in 2012, and an estimated 467,000 addicted to heroin. The history of heroin goes back to as early as like 3400 BC, but I'll start by talking about when heroin was first introduced. Heroin was synthesized as a derivative of morphine in 1898, and the German chemical company that you've probably never heard of, called Bayer, offered heroin as a cough suppressant and as a non-addictive morphine substitute for medical use. In the early 1900s in the U.S., a community group started sending heroin to people, wait for it, in the mail in order to combat morphine addiction. Heroin sales stopped altogether with the passage of the Heroin Act in 1924, making the importation, manufacture, and possession of heroin illegal in the United States. This was prompted by growing rates of addiction, and the Heroin Act made even its medicinal use illegal. For a while, heroin use was down, until resurgence in illegal heroin smuggled into the United States was attributed to the U.S. involvement in Vietnam in the 1960s. The Controlled Substances Act was passed in 1970 and began to consolidate all of the regulated prescription narcotic and opioid drugs under existing federal law into five separate schedules, based on the substance's medicinal value, harmfulness, and potential for abuse or addiction. The Drug Enforcement Agency was then created by executive order in 1973, and President Richard Nixon officially declared the war on drugs. Yay, Nixon! Then came the 80s, when President Ronald Reagan and First Lady Nancy Reagan asked Americans to join a national crusade not to tolerate drugs by anyone, anytime, and any place. At this point, doctors were afraid to prescribe opioids for any reason, and thus pain was being undertreated. In response to the growing recognition of the need to manage pain, a number of prescription opioids that were formulated to release their medicine over a period of time entered the market continuing into the 2000s. By 1999, an estimated 4 million people, about 2% of the population age 12 and older, were using prescription drugs non-medically. Of these, 2.6 million misused pain relievers, 1.3 million misused sedatives, and 
tranquilizers, and 900,000 misuse stimulants. The abuse and misuse of, op of opioid products containing oxycodone and hydrocodone included brands such as Oxycontin and Vicodin increased into the early to mid-2000s, doubling between 1998 and 2008. As a result of the increase in misuse and abuse of prescription painkillers in the early 2000s, pharmaceutical manufacturers and the FDA responded with product formulations that contain abuse deterrent properties and have supported education on proper opioid prescribing and use. The barriers to abuse today for these types of drugs include properties where they can't be cut or grinded up, won't dissolve in water, will reduce pain but not trigger the euphoria sensation that causes addiction, and several other methods. The number of prescriptions for opioids have escalated from around 76 million in 1991 to nearly 207 million in 2013, with the United States their biggest consumer globally. The U.S. accounts for basically all of the world total for hydrocodone, aka Vicodin, and 81% for oxycodone, aka Percocet. Deaths related to prescription opioids began rising in the earliest part of the 21st century. By 2002, death certificates listed opioid poisoning as a cause of death more commonly than heroin or cocaine. But since we know that prescription opioids are, are a huge problem, and so we have increased regulation on them, there has been a major shift towards using heroin instead, especially among young people. This is in part due to the fact that heroin is cheaper and sometimes easier to get than prescription opioids in some communities, as well as the potential of transition to heroin because of a tolerance to the prescriptions. Heroin abuse, like prescription opioid abuse, is dangerous both because of the drug's addictiveness and because of the high risk for overdosing. In the case of heroin, this danger is compounded by the lack of control over the purity of the drug injected and its possible contamination with other drugs, such as fentanyl. There has been an increased media attention recently about fentanyl because it was the prescription opioid that caused the death of Prince when he used it and overdosed. At the time of his death, Prince was being treated for opioid withdrawal as well as anemia and fatigue. Fentanyl is the strongest opioid approved for medical use in the United States, rated as 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine and 30 to 50 times more potent than heroin. Because of its potency, it is basically only used for pain associated with advanced stage cancer and cancer treatment. Also, we can't forget associated risks with drug use, particularly heroin because it is injected intravenously. There is a proven link between heroin use and increased risk of HIV, hepatitis, STDs, and other blood-borne diseases, in part due to the sharing of needles, but also because of the risky sexual behavior that is often associated with drug abuse. I was randomly perusing Facebook, as we millennials do, and I found an article posted by the New York Times. Well, technically, it was a review of a documentary that was released last week. The movie, called The Seventh Fire, explores Pine Point, a village in northern Minnesota on the White Earth Indian Reservation. While many themes are explored throughout the film, including gang life, alcoholism, and other issues plaguing many Native American populations, I want to focus on the aspect of drug abuse. According to the review, in one scene, 
One of the documentary's main characters learns that he's going to jail. As a result, he throws a farewell party, which is a prime example of how drug abuse deteriorates the people within a community. Drug abuse and alcoholism disproportionately affects American Indians in this country. In fact, it consumes Native Americans more than any other ethnic group in the United States. About 18% of American Indian or Alaska Native adults need substance abuse treatment, almost twice the national average, according to figures from the federal government. Deaths from alcoholism, diabetes, homicide, and suicide are two to six times as high among Native Americans as they are among other groups, according to various studies. But despite these facts, the media has not focused on communities of color for the, na the nation's heroin epidemic, but communities that are suburban, white, and middle class. This is where the idea of prescription painkillers as a gateway drug to heroin comes from. In these communities, the prescriptions are much easier to get. However, while communities of color are more likely to have issues with drug abuse as a whole, according to data from the CDC, white communities are more likely to have deaths from heroin overdoses. This is true independent of region or socioeconomic status. According to the New York Times, white adults between the ages of 25 and 34 are, quote, the first generation since the Vietnam War years of the mid-1960s to experience higher death rates in early adulthood than the generation that preceded it, end quote. And going back to the correlation between prescription opioid abuse and heroin abuse, while there is definitely a correlation, strong, undeniable connections have been hard to prove. However, white communities are the best example of this connection, and yes, it does have to do with race. According to a study that looked at Medicare data from 2007 to 2012, white patients were being prescribed opioids at a higher rate than minority groups. Another argument can be made to the idea that it doesn't have to do with racial bias from doctors, as, this, as that study showed, but that the overdose disparity is more related to the fact that whites are more likely than blacks to visit a doctor because of things like health insurance coverage and healthcare access, which we know are lower in communities of color. But at the end of the day, whites are still more likely to get that opioid prescription. Additionally, the spread of quote unquote pill mills, aka operations where unscrupulous doctors rubber stamp prescriptions for opiates, combined with the idea of affluenza, has led to more whites abusing pills and later trying heroin. You may have heard of affluenza in the trial against the underage kid who drunkenly got in a car and ended up killing four people. According to a book titled Affluenza, the All-Consuming Epidemic, affluenza is, quote, a painful, contagious, socially transmitted condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and waste resulting from the dogged pursuit of more. And then, because there is less policing in white neighborhoods, drug dealers are more likely to have successful sales there than in neighborhoods of color. Either way, since the FDA tightened regulations on prescription opioids starting in 2013, they are harder to get. For people trying to get them without the prescription, this has driven up their street value. And for people who have been deterred from using them because of these restrictions, heroin is much easier to get in comparison. This is mostly supplied by Mexican drug cartels. Black tar heroin, produced from poppies that grow in Mexico's Sierra Madre Mountains, has become the cheap and potent alternative to prescription painkillers. At this point, we know that these prescription opioids are very strong, 
very dangerous, too easy to get, and way too easy to, be, to abuse. So why are they still being prescribed? I want to end today's episode by talking about chronic pain. Weirdly enough, as someone who studied public health in college, the first time I really started to understand chronic pain was from a BuzzFeed page. Thanks, BuzzFeed. To me, it's similar to mental illness in that there isn't a cure, only a treatment. It inhibits everyday life. It is hard for people with chronic pain to talk about it and explain how they're feeling, and you cannot see this illness. One way to understand this is the spoon theory, a metaphor that explains how people with disability or chronic illness only have so much energy available for everyday activities and productive tasks. The spoons are an intangible unit of measurement that shows how much energy a person has throughout any given day. But even with the prescription painkillers, often opioids, that people with chronic illness can get, it still is sometimes doesn't work. And then add on top of that the thought of how hard it is now to get those prescriptions. And I'm not saying that it should be easier. But for someone with chronic pain, there is only so much energy to do things. And imagine how draining it is to have to explain to your doctor something that you don't even know how to explain. In countries besides the United States, it is nearly impossible to get these prescriptions, even if there is a legitimate need. Doctors are afraid to prescribe them because of possible legal ramifications, but this causes patients to suffer from excruciating pain. Experts say that this problem has been intensified by the stigmatization of drugs, partly because of the increase in opioid misuse and overdose in the U.S. A lot of studies show that misuse of prescription opioids even for the people that need them for legitimate medical reasons, is not rare. According to one study, misuse was common even in patients without depression, occurring in more than one-third of the patients studied. I wish I could end this with the answer that the medical world has come up with to provide prescription opioids to patients that legitimately need them while effectively monitoring and controlling the rate of opioid misuse and abuse. That is why this is an epidemic. And that is why it is being talked about almost every day. And on the day that the solution has been found, don't worry, I will be sure to tell you all about it. To submit feedback about Generation Invincible, ask questions, make suggestions for future episodes, or if you just want someone to listen to what you have to say, email generationinvincible at gmail.com. And don't forget to check out Generation Invincible's Tumblr page. As always, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. And until next time, to quote Russell Brand, can there be any other disease that renders its victims so unappealing? Would Great Ormond Street be so attractive a cause if its beds were riddled with obnoxious little criminals that had brought it on themselves? <laughs>